I was talking to a dear sister, um, and we were kind of sharing testimonies, and when we got done, um, she said, uh, that's fantastic, I know I'm saved, I know God loves me, and that's true, God loves those who are saved, actually God loves those who are not saved, it's just that, that they have to suffer the consequences of rejecting him. Um, she said, I know God loves me, but I, I don't know what he wants me to do. And this is a point of frustration for a lot of us. What is God's will? What would he have me do? Uh, how, how do I become part of the church? How do I become part of what God is doing in the world? How do I know that I'm walking in his will? And so we, we all struggle with this at some level at some time or another. Now, this week's passage tells us what we're going to do. And, and I'm here to tell you this morning that if you walked in here and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you confess your sins, if you turn towards him, that you, brother or sister, are saved for a reason. God saved you for a particular reason. It's a truth that I want you to walk out today. So we're in Luke. We've kind of set the stage the birth of the miracle babies has been announced, has been proclaimed. Elizabeth and Mary have embraced all of this. They're excited. They've gone all in. Uh, Zachariah and Joseph are struggling a little bit. Zachariah wasn't quite sure what to make of this visitation he had by this angel while he was serving in the holy place. He's a priest. I just think it's part of God's sense of humor that he relates this to us, that Zachariah is a priest. And he's at the pinnacle of his career. And he walks into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but just outside of the, the holy of holies. And an angel visits him. He has a, a heavenly messenger comes and says, God's heard your prayers. And he's going to answer him. And Elizabeth is going to have a baby. Elizabeth is beyond childbearing age. And it's kind of impossible for her to have a baby at this point. And Zachariah says, I need a sign. And so... Again, it's God's sense of humor that the sign he gives Zachariah, the priest, the preacher, is that he can't talk. I have nightmares about losing my voice and not being able to preach. So Zachariah is struggling with this thing, and, you know, he, he's not doomed. He's just, he had a hard time understanding what was going on, and he asked for a sign. And Joseph, you know, we, we don't really know where Joseph is in this narrative yet, other than we know that at some point Joseph decides that he might have to put Mary away. He might have to divorce her over all this. So the guys are struggling. The girls have embraced all this with all that they have. And now the first baby is about to be born. The first supernatural, the first miracle baby is about to be born. And we're going to see Zechariah redeemed from that slip that he made in the holy place. Redeemed by the grace of God. And we're going to see how that redemption impacts him. And maybe as we look at how Zechariah's redemption impacts him, we get an idea of how our redemption should impact us. So today's sermon is the hand of God. This is part four in our ongoing series in Luke, God's love for everyone. So I want to look at Zechariah's redemption. It permeates this passage. It comes in two reactions that Zechariah has to a situation. One is his obedience in verses 57 through 66, and the other is his prophecy in verses 67 through 80. So let's take a look at Zechariah's obedience. 
Verse 57 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced in her. Now, they live in Jerusalem. It's a relatively small town. Uh, all this stuff has been going on. Uh, you know, Zechariah comes out of the holy place. He can't talk. Uh, Elizabeth is pregnant. Uh, the community knows, and, and they gather at her house. Part of that is small town. Part of that is tradition. But we, we kind of do the same thing. The baby comes, and they, they have a baby shower. And the community shows up. People are bringing gifts. Uh, maybe some folks are bringing some meals so that she didn't have any. They do the same thing that we would do. And so the community has gathered, gathered around Elizabeth. They understand that something very unusual is going on. They say that the relatives and neighbors had heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, the thing about mercy here is, is a Greek word, uh, megaluno, and it, it means glorious. It means magnified. And uh, I love the way God inspires Scripture because he just bookended chapter 1. Because we saw Mary singing her song, the Magnificat, uh, which is named after the first word in Mary's song, which is magnify the Lord. And it's the same word here. So what we see is Mary is magnifying and rejoicing. And every time we see this greatness of God extolled in chapter 1, it's coupled with rejoicing. And it's just God's way of saying, look, there's something important going on here. God's glory is being exemplified. His name is being magnified. And every time, every time his name is magnified, the people of God come together and rejoice. It's an undercurrent in chapter 1. And it's there just to, to say, heads up, folks. There's something important going on here. So, and it, it just happens to be a precursor for what God is doing throughout all of Luke. He's, he's revealing his glory. He's showing his mercy to everybody. And people are rejoicing. Not everybody's rejoicing, but people of God is. And in verse 59 it says, And on the eighth day, they, the, the rejoicing crowd, came to circumcise the child. Now, the Jewish tradition goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 7, Genesis chapter 21. Uh, they would circumcise on the eighth day. This is a gift that God has given his people to mark them, to set them apart, to make them unique. They are not the only people in, in, the, in the East that circumcise, but they are the only people that God has called them to circumcise themselves. So it was done on the eighth day. By the time we get to the first century in Jerusalem, they're doing it on the eighth day, and that's primarily because the infant mortality rate was so high. 40% of the mothers, somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 to 50% of the children died right after birth. So, it, and the, the line of thought was if the baby survives through the seventh day, he's probably going to be viable for the rest of his life. So they circumcise on the eighth day, and this is a community event. The circumcision is there to say this baby is a part of the people of God. So everybody wants to rejoice. Uh, again, they know there's something going on. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise a child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now, again, 
This is Jewish tradition. It's not necessarily a scriptural guideline, but it was Jewish tradition that a baby would be, uh, a, a son would be named after his father or maybe his grandfather or maybe his great-grandfather. He would be named after somebody in the village. And the crowd expects this to happen. So they, they come, they, they Again, they're aware there's something very special going on, but there are traditions that are followed. There's, there's a certain level of expectation that the crowd has. We have to understand all this in order to understand exactly what happens because the crowd is looking at Mary because Zechariah doesn't talk. Typically, the father names the son. What the crowd doesn't know is that the father has already named the son, not Zechariah, but the father in heaven. said, you're going to call the baby John. Now, again, looking at the situation, Mary's older. She and her husband are pillars of the community. He's a priest. She's the son. She's the daughter of a priest. Okay? And that this promise has been made, and the promise is being fulfilled, and the community is now looking at Mary and saying, what are you going to name the baby? She's already been told the baby's name is John. But it would be very easy for Mary to kind of waffle here. I don't know, maybe we'll make the middle name John. Because these are my people and there's an expectation. My, my husband's not talking. There's something very odd going on around here. The last thing I need is to make everybody mad at me. The last thing I need is to break tradition and go contrary to the expectations of this crowd that has come into my house. Verse 60, but his mother answered, no, he'll be called John. Now we know Zechariah doesn't talk, but as far as we can tell from the scriptures, there was no revelation given to Elizabeth by an angelic being. So, Zechariah must have communicated somehow to Elizabeth that the baby was supposed to be called John. So, that's what she does. Elizabeth is in with both feet. Look at her faith. Look at her obedience here in the face of, of peer pressure and a very difficult situation. As far as Elizabeth goes, Zechariah may never talk again. Not only might she have been lost to the communication of her her husband, but he might not be able to minister anymore. She doesn't really know what's happening other than she was told she's going to have this baby and they, sh they should call it John. So Elizabeth takes this step of faith and says, no, we're not going to do what we're supposed to do here. We're going to do what I've been told to do by a visitor from God. And the crowd reacts in a typical fashion in verse 61. They said to her, well, none of your relatives is called by this name. Elizabeth, this isn't the way you do this. You know what we're supposed to do here. And by the way, you're not the one that's responsible for naming a baby anyway. So they do the only thing that they can think of to do to avoid this, this travesty of tradition. They turned to Zechariah and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So the crowd turns to the real authority here. And this... This is Zechariah's moment. He dropped the ball back in the holy place. He asked for a sign when he had already been given an incredible sign. What's he going to do now? He's the priest. He just served in the holy place. The community looks up to him. 
There's a certain level of expectation they have of him. Zechariah, you're going to do what our fathers did? You're going to hold the tradition? You know how much we value tradition? Do something about Elizabeth and the fact that she wants to give this baby this preposterous name that nobody in your family has. What will Zechariah do now? And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. They all marveled. They were all astonished. We saw this in, in Luke chapter 121 as well. At this point, Zechariah is not only obedient to what he's been called to do, he's totally yielded to the Lord. He's totally surrendered himself to God's plan in his life. Doesn't line up with expectations, but you know what? Nothing in this scenario lines up with expectations. Elizabeth shouldn't be pregnant, but she is. And if, by chance, Elizabeth did somehow get pregnant, she would never come to terms. She's too old. Remember that mortality rate. And it's all happening right in front of us. The baby's been born. And Zachariah gives it up and says, okay, Lord, you know what's going on, and I don't. So I'm going to do what you called me to do. And look at the result, verse 64. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke. He speaks for the first time in nine months. And remember, you know, the people around him don't know if he ever is going to speak again. The angel told him, you'll, you'll speak again when the baby comes. But Zechariah is obedient and yielded and what arises out of Zechariah in his complete surrender to the Lord is, is this. He says, oh, you know how long it's been since I spoke? You know what it was like in the Holy Holy? Let me tell you what happened in there. You know how hard this has been to watch the baby and all the people coming by him again. No, Zechariah worships. He blesses God. The first words in nine months are blessings towards God. Now this has an impact on the people around him. They know the situation too. Verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors. This is not, I'm trembling, I think God's going to hurt me, fear. This is that awesome, breathtaking astonishment at what God is doing. Here's evidence that God is moving powerfully in his family. Powerfully. Now, and, and, and again, you know, you have to understand the Eastern mindset. If he's moving in the family, he's moving in the community. God's doing something among us. It's not, hey, did you hear what happened with Zachariah and Elizabeth? It's, my gosh, God is doing something in the middle of us. And we don't understand it, but there's big things happening here. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Everybody's talking about it. Word is spreading like wildfire. Did you hear what happened? And, and, and you know how that went. They're gathering around the corner of the square and everything, and they called him John. <laughs> and people were like, well, there's nobody in their family named John, is there? Nope. Go figure. God's doing something. And all who heard them, verse 66, laid them up in their hearts, counted them precious, saying, 
what then will this child be? They're saying, what's going on with this baby? What is God doing? And they say this, for the hand of the Lord was with them. They saw that God is moving in the life of the baby. So Zechariah's obedience leads to this worship. He blesses God. That becomes a witness to all the people around him, indeed the region around him. All of his neighbors in Judea talked about it, laid it up in their hearts because they knew that the Lord's hand was upon this baby. The baby is John. And it means favorite of God. I want you to hold on to that because we'll talk about it in a little bit. But it means favorite of God. And now that, now that Zechariah has everybody's attention and he's able to speak again, he's got an audience, and God uses him more powerfully. And he begins by answering the crowd's question, what, what's going on with this baby? What then will this child be? Verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, now, this is Zechariah's prophecy. This is Zechariah's song. And we know that Zechariah is redeemed because God begins pouring through him in a very special way. God is about to announce the Redeemer of Israel. As a matter of fact, he's about to announce the Redeemer of all mankind. And he's going to do this through Zechariah. So, well, wait a minute. Why, why did they need to be redeemed? I mean, they were already the children of God. And obviously, these are godly people. They're in awe about what God's doing and everything's going on. But, but remember our time in Malachi. A large number of the people uh, in, in Judea had fallen away from God. They had turned their back on him. They're worshiping other idols. They're taking him casually. He's kind of on the back burner in their lives. Yeah, he's important, but there's other things going on in my life. I need to pay attention to that. And so God is sending the Redeemer to them to redeem them for having fallen short on their worship and their regard for who God is. So Zechariah sings this song. Now, Zechariah, you know, Mary's song was called the Magnificat because it came from the first word in her, her song. Uh, Zechariah's song is called the Benedictus because it comes from the first word in, in his song as well. And the song comes in four verses. And it starts out by extolling what God has already done. He said, Blessed Benedictus, be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now notice he's using past tense here. This is already done. God's already did this. And he's raised up a horn of salvation, talking about the Messiah, for us in the house of his servant David. And what, what Zechariah is saying, the baby's already conceived. The baby's on his way. God has already prophesied this. You know, he'll get to how long he's been prophesying it in just a second. But this baby's coming, and it is the redemption of the house of Israel. As he spoke by his mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Now, here's where the problems start. Because the people around Zechariah hear this. They're seeing all this going on. 
And Zechariah says, God is sending a redeemer. The baby's coming. And what he's going to do is going to save us from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Now, when I read that, I begin interpreting that from my current circumstances. Anybody here have anybody that doesn't like them? We have one honest man. Thank you very much, Paul. See, I think God is going to save me from those people that don't like me. I think God is going to take my current circumstances and turn them to my favor. And that's what the Jews thought. We've been under oppression for 4,000 years. You know, it was the, the, the Egyptians, and then it was the Assyrians, and then the Syrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and, and now it's the Romans. And God is going to save us from those people that hurt us, those people that oppress us. He's going to pull us up out of our circumstances and deliver us up on high and vindicate us and make sure that everybody understands that we're his people and they're the bad guys and we're the good guys. And indeed, God is saving them from their enemies. But you see, their, their worst enemy were not the Romans. Their worst enemy is themselves. And the way God would affect this salvation, it would, he would save them from their worst enemy, which is themselves and the sin that they commit and the consequences for that sin. See, we can make them the same mistake and think that God is going to save us from our circumstances when in all actuality, what he's going to save us from is our sin. And he might not alleviate our circumstances. Matter of fact, they might be there for a reason. If we look at the history of the Hebrew people, they have 2,000 years of calling out to God, getting saved from their situation, backsliding, and then calling out to God when they get in another bad situation. That's kind of you and me. When we need God, we call out to Him. When things are going good, oh, well, you know, I'll get around to that Bible reading. I'll get around to going to church. I'll get around to praying. But things are going pretty good right now. You see, we don't need to be delivered from our circumstances. They're actually there to remind us how desperately we need our Father in heaven. That's what God did with the Hebrew people. He would allow the situations to rise up in their lives so that they would realize how desperately they needed him. And when they did, he saved them. That's us. We don't need to be saved from our circumstances. We need to be saved from our sins. And when we call out to him, that's exactly what he does. So this is what God has done in the first verse of Zechariah's song. He's raised up a savior. And he's using Zechariah to make the first announcement of this. Well, why? And so, so now, now we get into a little nitty-gritty here. Because I like to think that God saved me because he needed me desperately in heaven. I like to think that everybody in heaven is holding their breath waiting for me to get there. I like to think that God saved me because he loves me. 
Hey, there's enough truth to that that it's easy to believe. I mean, God does. It, he loves us. Amen? So he, he must have saved us because he loves us. We're so valuable to him that he sent his son to die for us. Zechariah says maybe we need to rethink that. Look what he says here. In, why, why has God done this? Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Why does God save? Why is he sending this redeemer? To show his mercy. To show his great mercy. To show his magnified mercy. So God saves for two reasons. Look at the passage. Study it later on this afternoon. Number one, to put his grace on display. To show his great mercy. And number two, to create people who serve him. Now there's a subtle difference between that and God saved me because he wants me in heaven. One is God-centric. The other is self-centric. God saves us for his only, purpose, for his only purposes, for his self-centered purposes. And, and to, the extent, to the extent that that offends you, because I've had people go, well, that sounds awful selfish of God. To the extent that that offends you is the extent of your self-centeredness. I've had to deal with this. Doesn't sound like the God I want. <gasps> God saves us to put his grace and mercy on display and create those who will serve him. So we're still in the context of the baby, the crowd's still wondering what's going on with the baby. The next verse, Zechariah addresses that. Who's his servant going to be? And at first, he focuses on the baby. That's for the benefit of the crowd. We've asked this question. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, that's what the baby's called to do as he grows up. But then there's this crucial shift that occurs in verse 78. If you're not looking at the passage carefully, you're not going to see it. Okay? But in 78, Zechariah, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So this baby who's going to be a servant, who's going to proclaim light in the dark places, now becomes a blessing to all of the people of God who are called to do the same thing. You see what's happening here? He's shifting from what the baby's going to do is what we're going to do. Watch him, because that's the charge that we have. He goes from you, the baby, to us, God's people. Those who are blessed and saved are called to be a demonstration of his grace and called to serve him and his church. 
God's creating a servant in the baby. But that's not all he's creating. He's creating a family, a nation. He's creating an army of servants to do what he's called them to do. To go out into the world and to bring light to the darkness. To bring the message of salvation, the redemption, the redemption of all mankind that is coming and has already done that work. Wow. Well, what is the result of all that? Our fourth verse. We are, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. That's pretty heady. How are we going to do that? I mean, it's a great idea. It's noble. But who's going to listen to us? How are we going to guide people in peace? I mean, we, we sometimes can't even have peace with each other. How are we going to have it with the people that are against us, people that reject us? So it sounds like a heavy load, but there's good news because God is going to equip his servants. Bear in mind, the baby is a template here. The baby's the first one, verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He's in the wilderness. And he becomes strong in spirit because the Lord's hand was upon him. See what Zechariah's done? He's laid it all out. The Lord's hand is upon him. So John grew strong. And, and we see this hint of what is to come because we hear that John is favored by God and it would be easy for us to make the same mistake the Jews made and start interpreting that in our perception of what favor looks like. You know, the, the Jew to the Jews, favor looked like prosper uh, in livestock and clothing and houses and, and, you know, that sort of thing going on. And if you had all that stuff, you were blessed by God. If you didn't have it, you were doing something wrong. Well, we could do the same thing. It's a, John is favored by God, but... The Holy Spirit takes care of that right away because John's living out in the wilderness. As far as we know, he doesn't even have a home. And if we want to figure out what exactly was going on there, we can take a look at Matthew 3, 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. This is not the camel's hair that you can go down to Joseph Banks and buy a blazer that feels nice and soft and everything. This is camel skin. It's rough. It's itchy. I would get a rash wearing this. And he's got a leather belt. This is not, this is not a polished leather. This is a, a thong. This is a piece of leather that he's holding the camel hair skin close to his skin so that he can, I don't know, suffer through the day. <laughs> so it's not just that he doesn't have a lot of nice clothes and maybe doesn't have a nice home. Watch this. His food was locusts and wild honey. John, you're favored by God. You're going to live out in the wilderness by yourself. You're going to have this really scratchy clothing, and you're going to eat bugs. But don't worry, I'm giving you some honey. That'll take the edge off the bugs, kind of. Get home this afternoon. See if you can find some locusts and dip it in honey. See how it tastes. This is the man favored by God? 
But God said he's favored. God gave him the name. (laughs) What was he favored with? Brothers and sisters, favored by being with God. What do you think was going on out there in the wilderness? He's growing strong because God's hand was upon him. He's favored by having a relationship with God. He's favored by serving God, by being used by God, by being walking in the calling that he's given, not with all the trappings that the world would tell us that we need to look favorable, but with the things that God has given him to be favored by him. Ultimately, in Matthew 14, I mean, you want to put a cap on John's story. In Matthew 14, John's in prison. Herod put him there. Uh, Herod's a little apprehensive about John. He doesn't want to hurt him because he's, the, the crowd likes him and he's maybe concerned a little bit that maybe he is a messenger of God. So he's in prison and Herodia, Herod's wife, doesn't like John. Herod has a big party. All his friends are there. And Herodias sends her daughter in to dance for Herod. And her dance is so compelling that Herod foolishly, after having maybe a bit too much to drink, says, tell me what you want, I'll give you anything. And she says, I'd like to have the Baptist's head upon a platter. So not only does he live out in the wilderness and wear scratchy clothes and eat bugs, but he dies horribly. No earthly measure of John's ministry would say that this is a favored man. But God says, God says he is. The greatest favor that John receives is with God for all eternity. I'll bet you any money if if you go talk to John right now. He would say, oh, that stuff that I went through, that was nothing. Look where I am. Look how God has blessed me. An incredible story. So we've seen Zechariah's redemption rises up out of his obedience. He did what God told him to do, and, and as soon as he did, God began using him in a spectacular way. And we saw his prophecy. And, you know, that's all pretty neat. How do we relate to it? What do we do with this information? And well, if we take a look at Zechariah's redemption, I mean, we see a bigger story here. He, he begins to reveal the gospel. He begins to speak the word of God. John. <laughs> the word of God. The word that God had given him. And he reveals that John is called to proclaim Christ. To encourage repentance. To be the revelator of the message of salvation. And, and so we go back to verse 78 and see that this is not just a calling placed on John, but it's our calling as well. We have the same calling, and we watch it walk out in our lives when we obey God, when we acknowledge His only Son. He redeems us, and He uses us. And it rolls out the same way that Zechariah has put it in front of us. What did God do? Well, he raised up a Savior. Why did he do it? To show his mercy and to create servants. Who will those servants be? Well, it's going to be John, but it, it's all of us. We're all called to be 
his servants to serve him. And what will the result be? Well, he will lead people from darkness into light. And we're not on our own to do that. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the help of God. God will equip us. He will strengthen us. He will prepare us the same way that he prepared John. And we're going to be proclaimers of the risen Christ. And you know what? We may eat a bug every now and then. And we might be in some uncomfortable situations. And we might feel like we're alone. But God will be with us. God will walk us through. And we have the same eternal blessing that John had because that baby, once he was born, went on to give up his life and sacrifice it on the cross so that you and I never had to be uncomfortable again. Zechariah walks us through this step by step. And if you understand what I'm saying, then you understand that you, brother or sister, were saved for a reason. You're saved to be an exemplar of God's mercy and to serve Him. You see, the things that we do, I mean, we do this each other. When we meet each other, we go, hey, what do you do? When the last time you said, hey, what do you do? Somebody said, well, um, I put God's mercy and grace on display and I serve Him. Because if, if you did that, in a worldly setting, somebody go, no, I mean, what do you do? Um, I try to share his word and the message of the gospel because that's why God saved me. I need to know what you do. And we define ourselves by those callings that are secondary. Our primary calling is to demonstrate his grace and to serve him. And everything else in our lives is there to serve that calling. We never have to wonder what God wants us to do. All we have to figure out is what we're going to do while we're walking that out. Some of us are going to be called to drive buses. Some of us are going to be called to work in IT. Some of us are going to be called to stay at home and raise the family. Some of us are going to be called to go to school to the best we can. But the very first thing we're called to do is be exemplars of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word again. We thank you for this incredible message. It kind of rolls out from an unexpected source of of a man who's fallen, Father. Uh, And we thank you for the story of redemption in Zechariah, knowing, Father, that if you've redeemed him, that you can redeem us too. So we pray, Father, that as we walk in this, that we would see that you've brought into the world a redeemer, not just for the Jewish people, but for everybody who receives him, Father. And we pray, Lord, that we would be awestruck, just like those people in Judea, of the greatness of our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray.